Welcome to the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pfeffer, a professor at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, an author of 16 books on a range of topics, including the topic of my oversubscribed MBA class and this podcast, Power. Every other week, I talk to someone about their path to power and provide you with practical guidance about how to accelerate your career. Today's guest is Tony Levitan. I've known Tony for decades. Tony runs a consulting company called InWAC. He named the company because no one wants to be out of whack. So therefore, you want to be in whack, a nice name for the company. That is not, however, why we're talking to Tony. Tony and his brother both graduated from Stanford's MBA program. But that also isn't why we're talking to Tony today. We're talking to Tony today because of Tony's experience with eGreetings, symbol E-G-R-T, a company that actually went public, one of the very first internet companies that was in the business of selling basically online greeting cards. Tony and a friend of his, Fred, co-founded the company, and Tony, unfortunately, like as happens to many founders, had a difficult experience. The company at the end was not worth $300 million, but more like $30 million, and Tony was forced out of the company. It's interesting, a little background. Noam Wasserman, a professor at Harvard Business School, did a study of startup founders, and he found two things. First, many founders, by the third or fourth round of funding, had lost their positions in their companies. Number two, even more interesting, the more successful the company, the more likely the founder was to have lost their job. And the intuition is no one fights over garbage, number one. And number two, the more successful the company, the more outside funding had been raised. And with outside funding came an outside board of directors and came the VCs, who were more likely, of course, therefore, to think that the founder was not capable of taking the company to the next level. And for those of you who aren't doing startups, let me give you another example from the world of inside companies about how success can lead sometimes to trouble. Former student of mine named Christine ran a very successful operation and project for the company that makes all the eyes, or the technology company with all the eyes, the iPhones, whatever. One of her peers went to their common boss and said, I think Christine should report to me. So, of course, that way he could get credit for her good work. Success inside of companies or success as a startup founder does not guarantee you longevity or happiness or many other things. Because of Tony's personal experience and because he today runs a consulting firm that talks to startup founders and entrepreneurs, he is extraordinarily well-suited to be on the Pfeffer on Power podcast and talk about, number one, his experience, but more importantly, the lessons that he conveys to founders about how to maintain their job and their sanity. Tony, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Jeff. Is it okay to blush on a podcast? Of course. That was quite an introduction. Well, as you know, I invite you to the class 
because I think your experience and perspective is extraordinarily valuable. Thank you. And you are somebody who's reflected a lot on all of this. So why don't you first start with a brief, as brief as possible, overview of your sojourn from the founding to the end of your time at eGreetings. Great. So my co-founder, Fred Campbell, whom you mentioned, was a classmate of mine at the GSB, Stanford Business School. And in 1993, we had the idea, what eventually became an internet company called eGreetings. So we were founding an internet company way back when. And our vision was around enhancing online communication because up until then, everything was just text. Now, that wasn't a big surprise during 2,400 baud modems, but as the speeds went up, we thought we could add a lot of value to communication by bringing animation and what have you. We spent six years building e-greetings into a top 20 website with about 13 million customers back when that was a big number. And one of the things Fred was really clear about when we were founding the company, he said, hey, every five years, I like to do something new. And his departure hadn't really come up until year six when he was getting a little tired of what we were doing. He had some personal stuff going on. And we had a conversation around his transition out of the company. And my identity was very wrapped up in our partnership. Up until then, I had worked in the advertising industry. I was an Asian studies major. So my identity as an entrepreneur was very much in our partnership. There was stuff that I could do, and then there was stuff that he could do. So the first question was, well, why don't I just take over and lead the company individually. And again, my identity then got in the way. I wish I had the clarity then that I have now. I wish I had access to a coach like what I try to provide for my clients now, but I didn't. And what we started was an ill-conceived search to bring in someone to replace Fred, who then would continue to run the company with me. And that didn't seem as nearly as naive when we conceived it as it does today. We started our CEO search when there were 81 internet CEO searches going on in the Valley alone. And we ended up hiring someone who, by all stretches, was exactly the wrong person. And the hostility between us was pretty much one way initially, and then it became both ways as well, as the new CEO immediately started to create conditions where he believed he could run the company without me. As an example, he showed up at his first board meeting with an org chart that didn't include me on it. And I, I don't know about you, I found that a little bit hostile. Luckily, so did the board, which said, unacceptable. Tony is the face of the company. He is the conduit to all our strategic partnerships and the marketing juice that has taken our, us and our growth. So you got to find a way to work together. And uh, that actually never really worked out. So I did a transition where I ended up leaving about the same time Fred did, which was even once I decided I was going to leave, it was still a relatively inelegant experience. There are choices that I think were very clear for me earlier that, again, I wish I had someone <laughs> like me to help me see those choices. 
when I work with my clients, I believe my job through the coaching is to help people see a broader array of choices. And I didn't have anyone around me who provided that benefit. I was intimidated by being responsible for all the stuff that Fred did really well. And it's like, well, I, I don't know how to do that stuff. How could I possibly be the CEO? And unfortunately, I didn't never ask that question out loud because the answer was, well, you hire a COO who can manage all that stuff and you can go on and continue to do what you do. So anyway, I'm glad to offer more, Jeff. I thought that would be a nice overview. That is a nice overview. And it raises, I think, a couple of interesting issues. First of all, one of the reasons I think that when founders are expelled from the company, to use a word, often the company does not do as well afterwards, is those founders have built the culture of the company. And one of the successes, one of the secrets to success of eGreetings was, in fact, the company culture. And when the founders go, the culture also often goes, and therefore, companies have trouble. Is that a fair statement? I think it's really fair. To this day, when I run into or hear from people who worked at eGreetings, many of them still consider it the best place they ever worked, which is both incredibly affirming and also a little disappointing because it's been a lot of years. They're very talented people. They ought to find good places to work. And we, during the period of time where Fred and I were still overlapped with the new CEO, I remember distinctly one all-hands meeting where one of our early engineers who was a real culture carrier, was challenging some of what was going on these days under the new CEO. And he ended up getting into an argument with her to the point where it became unproductive. And I stepped in and addressed her concern. And after the all hands, I had you know, a number of people came up to me and said, wow, that was one of the most generous things I've ever seen anyone do the way you just bailed him out. <laughs> and about an hour later, he called me into a conference room to rip me a new orifice because I made him look bad in front of the organization. So the bifurcation of culture of those who were there before and those who were coming afterward was quite severe. And a lot of the people who came afterwards were coming because of what was already there. So there was a lot of confusion that way. The other thing that became really intriguing is a number of initiatives that we had up and running. He just decided he decided to cancel or put them on the back burner. And then there were a few that were, I thought were pretty inspired when we were doing them that he tried to revisit and bring back six months later, which of course didn't work. So the company became a little pathless, I think it's safe to say, albeit there were still some really strong leaders there who were well-placed in business development. But he came in, he replaced our counsel, he replaced our publicists, he replaced our bankers, he replaced a lot of management. I actually liken it, for anyone who's ever had a, a dog I likened it to a male dog walking into a park where he just lifted his leg and peed on everything. Not because it needed to be, but because he could. So that transition for us didn't work out as we would have liked. Now, it also ran concurrent to some of the challenges with an internet company. And we went public in December 1999, and then the market imploded just three months later. 
you raise an interesting point. I mean, it is also often the case that when new people come in, they get rid of the old team and things go in the wrong direction. I've seen this when Amir Rubin got replaced when he left, and then the, they brought in an outside CEO at Stanford Healthcare, the outside CEO. You know, within a year, the team was gone and the culture had changed. So very often, the outside successor causes issues. And so I want to talk to you about search. Not only search for executives. I mean, many people hire people from outside, are responsible for hiring. Based upon your experience, not only at eGreetings, but your coaching experience, if you give people advice on how to hire people who aren't going to damage the company, which is oftentimes hard to do, what advice do you give them on how to conduct successful searches, how to hire outsiders who aren't going to behave like dogs and piss all over whatever was there? <laughs> well, I have another collection of experiences, which, as you know, in between my three companies and starting in WAC, I also did two stints as a chief people officer. And the first place where I was chief people officer had just hit an inflection point where we were starting to do a lot of hiring from the digital health company. We were starting to do a lot of hiring from Gilead and Genentech and Johnson & Johnson and places like that. And many of those leaders were actually not very effective. And when we looked into it, partially is because we weren't hiring from the right perspective. As they came to the company, they all had a a belief that they wanted to be in an early stage company, but they really had no connective tissue to understand what that really meant, that objectives were going to be turning quickly, that they wouldn't have a whole lot of staff, that they wouldn't have as much support, that they actually would have to get in with their hands and actually build while the company was coming out of that inflection point into the market areas where their current experience would become useful. It's just getting that bridge would be challenging. So one of the mistakes we made at eGreetings is we actually, I feel embarrassed to share this because it's so obvious, but we had the executive search firm do the reference checking. <laughs> and I mean, you want to talk about misaligned incentives, right? I mean, their incentive is to close the search. Our incentive is to have deep insight into who's coming to work at our company. So that's one of the things I always mention. The other thing is that references aren't so much about should I hire this person or not. References really ought to be about how do we most effectively work with this person? What does this person need to be effective in working with us? But the other piece is really that first one I mentioned, which is the aptitude to come from working at a large company, often a market leader, and being thoughtful about how to help an earlier stage, even if it's a rocket ship and scaling like crazy, even if it's an earlier stage company and helping them get to the point where all their experience becomes relative. Well, I used to write a column for Business 2.0, when Business 2.0 still existed, I wrote a column entitled Resumes Don't Tell. Resumes tell what people have done and where they have been, but they don't necessarily tell you what they can do or are willing to do or where they are at that stage in their life. So I think the search process 
is invariably difficult. And I think your idea about not outsourcing the reference checking is both obvious, but also profound. Well, it also, Jeff, it, it also stuns me how many, and I see this with my clients who are many of them really accomplished and have pushed their companies far, how little behavioral interviewing they do, right? It was like, okay, so if I had this scenario, what would you do? I mean, they'll just come up with something. I'm much more interested in, tell me about a time when you faced an issue like this. What did you do? How did you get out of it? And what did you learn? And how have you applied that learning, right? So it becomes much more about what they have done, not from a content point of view. You know, I, I built a $300 million business, but more from an actual adaptive challenges of getting from here to there when it's not a straight line, which is what early stage companies are all about. And the other issue that you've raised early on is this idea that you yourself did not feel in some level that you deserve to be the CEO. Sometimes this is called imposter syndrome. And I am sure that you have worked with your clients, many of whom face this issue of imposter syndrome. In my book, Seven Rules of Power, I talk about getting out of your own way. And one of the ways in which you need to get out of your own way is to have more confidence in your ability not only to do the job, but for the parts of the job that you can't do at the moment, your ability to learn, your ability to grow into the job. So when you work with clients who are confronting various versions of imposter syndrome or feeling like they don't deserve the job or they need to bring in some outsider to do what they could probably do better, how do you work with them on that issue? Well, I think the part that would have helped me and now, I mean, what, one of the reasons why I feel comfortable talking about the challenges of my transition from e-greetings is because I think I've done what Amy Edmondson writes about in her latest book, The Right Kind of Wrong, is I think I've built it into intelligent failure. And I've learned the lessons and I have figured out how to apply them in different situations, in different contexts. And through inquiry, can often work that with my clients. One of the things that I think is the easiest door in for many is we all are asked to make business decisions off of data. And yet, when it comes to two things, we don't tend to bias towards data. One is people. We don't tend to have as much data on people, right? We make decisions off of gut feel and things like that. The other is being able to take an external view of ourselves and our competency, right? So I, I do have a couple clients right now who are wrestling with their identity as a competent leader. And yet they're surrounded by data that says you are making a difference. You are delivering impact. They just have a hard time seeing it. And they don't have people around them who are helping them see it on a daily basis. So even when they get on the one side of feeling a little bit more able then, you know, it doesn't take much to knock them for a loop and they can easily go back into the spiral. And whether it's earned or not or deserved or not is a whole different story because there are some things that they walk into where they don't know how to do it yet and they forget what great learners they are. 
right? I, I like to believe that great leaders are great learners, just as you pointed out. I mean, I, I could have taken on the learning curve to oversee all of what Fred was doing had I just had a little bit more confidence that I didn't actually have to do it. I just had to lead. I had a client who was promoted from head of sales to CRO, chief revenue officer, which meant he was also taking on responsibility for marketing. And right after the promotion, one of our early conversations, I asked him how he was doing. He said he's very anxious because he's not a marketing expert. And I asked, well, does the CEO expect you to be a marketing expert? And he paused. And I asked, well, when you took on this new role, what were you asked to deliver? He said, well, a cohesive strategy between sales and marketing. I said, well, how do you do that? And you know, he then worked through the, oh, I need to get a marketing leader who is an expert, and then I just need to do the knitting together. And he realized that he was getting anxious about doing something that he didn't, that the organization didn't actually need him to do. The organization asked him to do something at a higher plane, and he was working down in the lower ranks. I think it's a fabulous example, and I think it really illustrates, first of all, the importance of inquiry. And I think you have illustrated very well in your conversation with me today the importance of reflection and the importance of asking the right questions. And frankly, not to boost your business too much, the importance of having an executive coach. I mean, many people believe that getting a coach is an admission of weakness or an admission of failure or an admission of somehow inadequacy. But to me, a coach, a good coach, an effective coach, is someone who helps you see what is in front of you, but you can't see yourself. Yep. And helps you to ask questions in a more productive and better way. And by the way, nobody would ever say that... Serena Williams can't play tennis, but Serena Williams always had a tennis coach, even after she was a pro. Nobody has ever said Tiger Woods couldn't play golf, but Tiger Woods had a coach. And by the way, nobody says that Patrick Mahomes doesn't know how to throw a football, but he has a coach. So having a coach is not at all an issue of inadequacy. It's an issue of getting the kind of assistance that will make you more effective using the skills that you already have. Yeah, no, I'm with you, Jeff. When I made the shift to NWAC, it took me a while to figure out where my sweet spot was going to be because I think just like I had to figure out where I could deliver as a coach, I think people who look for a coach need to do some reflection on what would be helpful to them. So for example, I learned, it took me about a year to learn this, but I, I learned the less I know about my client's organization's operations, then the more effective I could be because they don't need me to solve operational issues, right? My sweet spot is at the intersection of developmental opportunities, interpersonal and strategic choice and operational excellence. And it's there and seeing that nexus and using inquiry, relentless inquiry, to help them understand that while they may believe they need to do X, there actually is an alternative in Y and Z, and then they ought to gather information to help them do whatever they need in order to make a decision in which they could be confident. But I, I can't tell you the number of times where 
well, we'll have a session and someone will start with an issue that is very narrowly defined. And then over the course of the session, it'll get a broader definition and understanding. We'll move around a little bit. And then they get to come back to the sweet spot because now they have a much deeper understanding. And the decision is often much easier to make that. Thank you. That I think that's exactly right. And that's a good way, I think, for us to end our conversation because I try to keep these episodes reasonably short. Tony Levitan, co-founder of eGreetings, a good personal friend, a guest in my class. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really insightful. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This has been the Pfefferon Power Podcast, where every other week we talk to an accomplished individual about their path to power and the practical lessons for you. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite sources and buy my most recent book on power, Seven Rules of Power. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and jeffreypfeffer.com. Pfeffer on Power is a production of Stanford University and University FM.